We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. That is going on holiday. That'll cool down your radio for a while. Here's Scott Thompson. I don't know what he means by that. Is that good or bad? I don't know. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Randy Meisner, founding member of the Eagles, has passed away at the age of 77. Let's bring in Graham Rockingham. Haven't talked to him for a while. Former music journalist, retired from the Hamilton Spectator, but back to talk to us today. Graham, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, yeah. I was just having a nap. <laughs> Welcome to retirement. Oh, that's hilarious. So yeah, how like are you? how are you enjoying it? Well, it's like every day is a day at the cottage. You know? It's uh, jigsaws, crosswords, long walks. Good for you. Well earned, my friend. Well earned, my friend. So what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I mean, my goodness, we're sort of at that time when uh, some of our favorite classic rockers are, are passing on. So nothing new here. Uh, we, we could write out a list of ones that we think could be possibly on the way. But how does this one resonate with you? And considering the Eagles and the kind of band it was and, and a lot of members there. A lot of members, and, and Randy was a founding member, and, and it's not just the Eagles. Randy was one of those guys who was uh, a key part of that West Coast country rock uh, family tree. Um, he was a Nebraska farm boy, and he moved to California to become a rock star. And uh, I think his first band in California was The Poor, but he was uh, he was picked up by the management of uh, Buffalo Springfield, and he was picked up and, and Sonny and Cher. So he quickly fit in to that scene and, uh, and, and played with such. He was uh, one of the original members of the band Poco, um, left there with some musical disagreements with its founder, Richie Furry, who had come from Buffalo Springfield. And, uh, and it's funny, he, he beat out uh, for that position in Poco, Timothy P. Schmidt. Uh, who would eventually hmm. replace him in Poco and also replace him in the Eagles. So wow. He's, yeah, and he played uh, He played with uh, Ricky Nelson's Stone Canyon Band. He played, so he he was a major part of that uh, California scene of the late 60s, early 70s, and was one of the original Eagles, as I said, and stayed with them right through Hotel California, where it got into kind of a messy thing during that, long and grueling tour. Um, he was the, he'd written the big hit, which was on the, one of the, these Knights albums called uh, uh, Take It to the Limit. Yeah. And he was the lead singer on it. He was the guy that had the high vocals. Yeah. He had the, the high harmony vocals and he had also played bass. It was an, an odd configuration. Um, and that song was so big for the, the Eagles, even in the Hotel California tour, it became the um, the encore, the first encore yeah. song. Mm. And he had problems hitting those high notes. I mean, it was a tough tour. Who knows what kind of uh, uh, substance abuse was going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And and there was a, a row. He didn't want to play the song anymore. He hated the limelights. He was having problems hitting the high notes. He was exhausted, wanted to go home, and got into pretty much fisticuffs with Glenn Fry. Uh, 
who with Don Henley was the leader of the band and uh and and that was it for for Randy. He tried he had a couple of solo albums after he left the Eagles, uh but they they really didn't go in, uh, anywhere and he he'd been suffering ill health for many years. Yeah. Even back then there was there was uh, mental health issues, there were substance abuse issues. And so yeah, it's sad to see that go. Um because he was so such an important part of that whole scene, as I said. And it seemed that the band went through a transitionary period there, as you talked about, part of that mm. sort of folky folk rock scene of the late 60s, early 70s, and then sort of transferred, bringing in guys like Joe Walsh and cranking up the guitar and sort of went in a different direction. Felder, yeah, and they, yeah, it became, uh, uh, it became a full rock band, especially, yeah. as we all know, Hotel California, the big, one of the biggest albums of all time, not just one of the biggest Eagles albums, but it was up there with Dark Side of the Moon and Fleetwood Mac. Uh, that 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 was such a huge thing, and uh, and and I don't know if that was so much of a problem. It was for another original uh, a player, uh, Bernie Leadon. He did not like going in the hard rock direction. Yeah. But uh, you know, it was hard to argue with, considering the amount of money that was pouring in too. So. So when Randy left the band, do they play Take It to the Limit in concert? Do they cool it off for a bit? I'm what happened pretty, with that? I'm pretty sure Timothy took over the vocals there. Yeah. Randy and Timothy were such uh, uh, similar players. Um, you know, both had the high harmonies. They could both hit those uh, notes. Um, Timothy, um, who had become the front man for Poco, had no problems taking the limelight, though. So that was a big mm. difference there. And, uh, and, and, and Timothy, you know, I think more people know who Timothy P. Schmidt is now than they do who, you know, who uh, Randy Meisner is. That's a valid point. It's almost like, well, and like many successful rock bands, goes through different phases, different, uh, different lineups, many. different whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you think they will be, what era, what part of this? Because, you know, I, I hadn't listened to Take It to the Limit for a long time, and boy, it sounded good. So which, what era stands out? I think it's that, to me. I, I, I thought maybe it was because Hotel California was so overplayed. Yeah, and, played it a lot. And I thought it was a bit overdone and a bit slickly produced. And uh, sorry about the motorcycle in the background. I'm on my balcony. <laughs> but uh, I, I like that, uh, um, uh, the Desperados uh, period. I like the, uh, 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 that mid-period um, where it, before the superstardom had hit. Mm. And, uh, you know, and Joe Walsh was a, was a great addition to the band, but he... Took it in a completely new direction. I remember when the Eagles first started out. I said, "What? These guys are just copying Crosby's little stash. It's been done yeah. before." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good point. That and, was the sound he, of the era. That was a, yeah, and 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 so they took it to the new places. Good for them, and uh, and and the success continued uh, to grow. I mean, I, the Eagles were the first band I ever play. I ever paid more than a hundred dollars a ticket for (laughs) that's a very unusual way to remember the band graham i was outraged oh i we i I talked about that earlier on that they when all of a sudden when they reformed boom uh the ticket prices went through the roof hell hell freezes over uh to our which is 
game because they were never going to, you know, the tour again. That's it. They were never going to tour again, of course. And there was like, how many hell freezes over tours? Yeah. But I remember that. It was, I I saw them in Vancouver and it was over a hundred bucks and I was outraged. But my wife loved the band. And uh, so I, and aren't you aren't you glad aren't you glad now you did? Graham Rockingham with us, former music journalist, retired from the Hamilton Spectator. Graham, great to have you back on. We'll chat again. Be yeah, well. Good talking to you, Scott. Take care, and everybody, stay out of the heat. Yeah, exactly. Get on a motorcycle where Graham. That's what he's doing. As soon as he gets up from his nap. Haven't talked to Reggie Cicchini in a while, Washington correspondent for Global News. Let's do that. Find out what is going on south of the border. Uh, Trump's uh, troubles uh, just continue, I guess. And a bizarre situation uh, with head Republican Mitch McConnell as he freezes up uh, during a news conference. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global, is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. Reggie, let's talk about Mitch McConnell. This was uh, pretty scary. He was, uh, I guess, in front of cameras and, and, and doing a newser and all of a sudden just froze for like 19 seconds. Uh, what happened with this? What's the fallout? We don't know uh, exactly what happened, but you're right. It was 19 seconds of, of awkward silence, but also a very concerning silence uh, because you saw the, the leading Republican in uh, the U.S. Senate uh, his eyes started to dart around and slowly roll back, uh, and he was unable to finish his sentence and had to be led away by uh, some of the more senior members of the Republican Party. Uh, and he came back a short time later, answered questions, and said he was fine. Uh, and the conversation is is kind of stalled right there. But it is um, leading to questions here, not only about Mitch McConnell, but about the kind of serious problem with um, advanced aged people in a public setting that are walking the halls of Congress, because this is happening on both the Republican side and on the Democratic side. Uh, and uh, we understand the he had recently had a fall in, 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 in concussion issues. Is that accurate? Yeah. So we've learned that uh, at least three times over the last year, Mitch McConnell has fallen. And, you know, if you zoom back, you know, to the, you know, the early parts of his life, he's a polio sufferer, uh, a polio survivor. Uh, and that has led to, you know, moments of him walking a little, um, you know, more cautiously uh, right. in public settings. Uh, but over the last year, we learned that he fell uh, at a restaurant. He fell at a hotel. He fell uh, at an airport or at least getting on or off a plane. Uh, and in one of those cases, suffered a, a concussion and multiple broken ribs. And that sidelined him uh, from the Senate for, for several weeks here. So you know, it's kind of part and parcel here. Was this something linked to a previous incident? Is this something that is new? Is this something that has been undiagnosed? Those are, are kind of questions that are not being answered in uh, the public light. But again, it does spark that conversation here of, you know, well, so many members of of kind of the political world talk about, look, we need to put term limits in place for, for members of Congress. Does it rise to the question of should we be putting age limits on people who are serving uh, at the highest political office? Do you think there'll be rumblings for him to step aside within the Republican Party? I mean, it, it seems that that position he's in there for life. They've, they're that dedicated to him. Yeah. I mean, look, he he wields a lot of power. He holds a lot of respect. And think about it. He is still of that class of Republicans who uh, still hold that kind of classic conservatism uh, conservatism you know, deep within them, even though the Republican Party is slowly shifting and changing, there have been calls behind closed doors maybe for him to leave. And look, he's not up for re-election 
until 2026. We know that he's going to stay on at least through the next Congress, uh, you know, when when Congress, uh, you know, changes over after the next election, uh, whether or not, you know, he stays on as the leader or steps aside and somebody else picks up the leadership position. That's something that the party is going to have to figure out. But again, these are conversations happening in the Republican Party. They're also happening in the Democratic Party, because just this week, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein also found herself in a in a, an awkward public situation of being unable to carry out the duties of her job and needed to be prodded by staff to carry out a simple task. Uh, and, you know, the same could be said for Biden. Many are questioning his age as well. Sure. They're questioning Joe Biden's age. They're also questioning uh, Donald Trump's age. He's 77 years yeah. old right now. He'll be on the approach to 80 by the time uh, the election is over. And if he wins, Joe Biden is already 80. And if he wins a second term, we'll be well into his mid 80s by the time that second term uh, also comes to an end. And look, the fitness of a senator is very different than uh, than the kind of mental acuity and physical fitness of somebody who is supposed to be uh, the most powerful person in the world. And sure, you're hearing these conversations of, look, we're talking about the age of Mitch McConnell at 80 or Dianne Feinstein at 90, but having your president be 80 or 81 years old while finding himself in situations where he's making verbal gaffes or he's tripping and falling, um, it, it, it can't be said enough that the questions are being raised right around Washington. Um, are people too old to be serving in the positions that they're in? It's a Reggie, question that people don't want to, you know, you yeah. fear yourself being looked at as ageist. But it's a question that's being asked. Do you think this could inspire a young sort of uh, surge in in on both parties, on both counts? Hey, it's time yeah. to yeah. I mean, look, it's already happening in, in the last election. Uh, the youngest member of Congress, uh, a Gen Zer, was elected in Florida, and you have a rising number of young people within both parties uh, who who are kind of this new generation of politician who see things through a different eye, who want to do things in a different way. Uh, you know, the party is not neither party is kind of running to and grasping on the ideals that, that the kind of younger group are bringing in. But again, uh, you know, there have been concerns raised in both parties that they're not doing good enough a job at kind of grooming the younger members to lift them up and elevate them into higher positions uh, mm -hmm. because the old guard oftentimes does not want to let go. And then you find yourself in situations where you have senior members of the party who are seniors themselves finding themselves in positions where, again, they have to stop talking or they're forced to stop talking because something in their brain has simply stopped working. So uh, you were talking about Donald Trump earlier. Where is he now with his court tour and his in the proceedings and what have you? Where is he in this train? Well, I mean, look, uh, very quickly, Donald Trump's court calendar and his campaign calendar are about to run into each other because scheduled already, he has five trials between October and next May. And there are additional trials that are likely going to start up here because we are expecting additional indict indictments to come down from Washington, D.C. and Georgia in the next couple of weeks. That is now on top of a superseding indictment that was handed down just yesterday, charging Trump with more uh, charges of uh, of willful retention of top secret documents. And that has to do with a document that he was waving around linked to an attack on Iran. Also new obstruction charges linked to allegations that he and members at Mar-a-Lago were a part of a coordinated effort to stop or take down or delete pieces of surveillance to kind of thwart or stonewall the government from finding boxes. So the legal hmm. walls are closing in on Donald Trump. He claims he's done nothing wrong and that everything he's done has been above the law. 
the special counsel sees it differently. Is the money still coming in for him? Sure, of course it is. And he's on the campaign trail right now. He's at you know, an incredibly important event uh, in Iowa, which holds the first caucus uh, of the of the election season just six months from now. And the money is coming in. And not only is the money coming in, the support is not going anywhere. And it's reflected in the polls. Trump is still mm-hmm. 30 and 40 points ahead of some of the uh, you know lower members of the party. And it's still dozens of points ahead of second place uh, candidate Ron DeSantis right now. So there is a there's a, a, a section of the Republican Party, of the Republican base, at least, that likes Donald Trump, and they're not going to turn on him regardless of what happens. Obviously, we'll have to see if exhaustion, uh, legal exhaustion, you know, starts to set in with some of the voters here. But ultimately, he is running away with this kind of, you know, nomination process right now, even before the nominating has begun. Wow. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Happy Friday. All right. In a new piece in the National Post, Randall Denley argues that money is no longer a issue for Ontario nurses. The column is uh, no uh, money is no longer the problem for Ontario nurses. Provinces nurses wages, sorry, provinces nurses at the top of the pay scale uh, now have the highest wages in the country. Now it's time to end the years of complaints. To talk more about all of this, Randall Denley is with us, author and columnist with the Ottawa Citizen National Post, and here now. Randall, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. That's Scott. Thanks. How much blowback did you get for that headline? Yes, you don't write the headlines. you got to remember that. The author well, doesn't do that. Well, I think it was accurate. It's, uh, we've had a situation in, for more than three years now where we've heard the same story over and over Nurses are leaving in droves. Darn any nurses, why? Well, Doug Ford restrained their pay to 1% a year for three years, same as everyone else in the broader public sector. So all these nurses are leaving. The big problem, we're told, is money. You know, they would have stayed, but it came down to money. Well, you know, I think we've fixed that problem now because this latest arbitration that came out last week gave the nurses... 11% over two years. And that, that's on top of another three and three quarter percent they got because when the wage control legislation was overturned, there was an arbitration. So they got a bit more for those three years as well. So, you know, we're looking at uh, $109,000 now for a nurse in Ontario with eight years experience, which is the top of the grid. What about the shortage though, Randall? They're, they're, they're all taken off. Yeah, not as much as you would think, Scott. I mean, we we hear that, and there's certainly some truth to it. Ontario has actually gained total nurses since uh, 2020, but you know, some have left, some have retired. But we're at, we're ahead of the game compared to where we were three years ago. So they're going in the right direction, but the the other factor here that's really seldom mentioned and taken into account is that uh, the Ford government asked more than 1,700 hospital beds. So those have been funded, they exist, but you've got to have nurses for them. Yeah. So that made the demand for nurses go up. You know, had they not done that, we wouldn't have looked so short of nurses, although we looked off a short of hospital beds. So you've got a system kind of racing to try to keep up with growth 
essentially as you know demand of population increases we need more beds more nurses when you start out in the hole it's tough to catch up but you know if in fact pain was the big thing that was making people leave or perhaps not want to enter the profession then i do think we solved that so we'll see if that fixes it personally i'm not utterly convinced this is going to do it because you think why would a nurse leave was it because she didn't get one or two percent more in those pandemic year contracts or was it because of all the things that people went through in hospitals? I mean, it was a terrible period of time. Yeah, yeah, very difficult. To be a nurse, you know. Yeah, yeah. People die, and there's nothing you can do. It, not really quite the job you signed up for, at least, you know, life you'd experience. Uh, pretty tough to take. So I can see why somebody would get burned out, why they'd quit. And really, you know, how do you fix that with money? It, it's kind of interesting reading this arbitrator's award because he's he's totally convinced that this is this is the way to go it's a money thing i'm awarding money here we go i fix nursing in ontario but you look at you know two things the provincial government did during the pandemic they said here's a five thousand dollar bonus yep keep working it's a fair amount of money and they had a you know more recently an attempt to lure people back into the profession and say look if you would commit to Coming, if you've been out for more than six months, you commit to coming back, you stay for two years, we'll give you $25,000. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty significant financial incentive. Yeah. For most people. It doesn't seem to have solved the problem, but if those things didn't fix it, then will the race fix it? I don't know. It's interesting because obviously uh, we know what happened during the pandemic. Uh, lots of weak links exposed, uh, trying hard to fix them. It's not done overnight, but we certainly can see the improvement. Uh, there's been a lot of positive uh, steps by the government that really, really go on and recognized. It seems the only ones that are complaining about this still are the ones who are benefiting from a system that hasn't been reformed or that, you know, runs under the old way. It seems most people are, you know, there was a headline, uh, we've spent more than ever on private nurses and private. Well, isn't that a good thing? Because we were trying to fill a backlog here. So it, it seems that the solutions become the issue, the problem. And and the only ones that are really complaining about it are the, uni- the, the unions who benefited from the old system. Yeah, the nurses from private agencies, Interesting issue, right? Because these are all nurses who said, you know, I'd rather work for a private agency than a hospital. I don't get benefits or a pension, but I get quite a bit more per hour. And I get what I think are better shifts. So I'm choosing that. But basically, their unionized colleagues still on a job in the hospital are furious. How dare you choose to work for more money? Yeah. On the other side of their mouth, we need more money. Nobody should work for this pay. Well, some people saw their own problem, but the provincial government says that only 2% of total nursing hours are provided by agencies. I know there's been some media coverage in the last few days that makes it seem like it's huge, and it's bigger than it was. But when you put it in the context of the whole picture, it's not very large. Randall Denley with us, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and National Post, the latest in the National Post. Money is no longer the problem for Ontario nurses. Randall, as always, thank you for the time. Be well.
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, we've talked about this of late, and there's been calls through various uh, medical organizations that uh, we should be having an inquiry into how we handled, got through, uh, one end or the other, the COVID-19 global pandemic. I think it's pretty obvious why we do need some sort of inquiry. It was a, a world event that completely changed everything, and I'm sure there's some lessons to learn, uh, good things we did, not so good things we did. Let's bring in Dr. Kerry Bowman, bioethicist, assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, and here now. Kerry, thank you for the time. So, uh, Kerry, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, why we would need this? I mean, is it not, uh, considering this was such a worldwide event, we, we need to learn some lessons here? Absolutely. I, I, I'm a strong believer that we absolutely need this without question. But here's the counter argument is that Canada has lots of inquiries and then does nothing about them. Um, I don't think that that's not 100 percent true, by the way. There's some very strong exceptions to to that. But we owe it to the people that died in this pandemic. So as you said quite clearly in, in your intro, there's strengths and weaknesses. So strengths, you know, we often compare ourselves to the data of um, the United States and the United Kingdom. And on per capita, we did better than they did in terms of overall death rate. But long-term care, the elderly of Canada were decimated in our pandemic. And we did terribly, one of the worst, if not the worst in the world. Um, and that did not need to happen. And we need to really illuminate exactly how we dropped the ball so badly on that one. You know, also globally, there was a huge gap between what we said we were going to do for low-income countries and what we actually delivered on. We really didn't deliver on much at all. Um, and low-income communities did far worse than high-income communities. So I'm going to sound a little cynical here. I think our government would love to just leave this whole thing with we did better than the United Kingdom and the United States and move on. But there's mm. more to it than that. Yeah, and, and remember, many are, uh, were waiting. We were waiting four to six months behind the UK, US to get vaccination and such. Um, uh, yes, there's that. I, I, I remember. <laughs> I remember way back when one of the challenges of all of these during the first wave was there was no plan to look back on because this hadn't been done before, hadn't happened before, other than perhaps SARS. So, as if you have an inquiry, will that not lay that out for you? So here's the good things to do don't do this yeah but you know when we look at SARS and I was around for SARS you know I, I was actually exposed to SARS I was working in the Toronto teaching hospitals and I, I remember SARS very well when I say SARS I of course mean SARS 1 of 2004 and um, we had inquirers after that and we, we had strong recommendations which we didn't act upon um, so so we are in a lot of ways Canada you know really has more shame than other countries because we had previous experience to some extent I mean SARS-1 was nothing like COVID in terms of our losses there's no question about that but you know a lot of people are saying you know what's the point because we're, we already know what our weaknesses are I would argue we also need to point out there has to be some responsibility Sounding a little harsh here, but who dropped the ball where and when, and especially long-term care? How did that happen that we were so slow to protect older Canadians in a crisis like that? I, I think, I, you know, and I speak as an ethicist, we owe it to them and we owe it to all Canadians that we get to the bottom of that. 
Have guidelines been drawn up if this does happen again, or do we need an inquiry in order to clarify that? Well, you know, some guidelines have been drawn up, but but again, we tend to not act on these things. And I, I think the inquiry would really need to highlight where we, you know, as I said, where, where we've really not acted. And, you know, so one of the, cha- you know, I am not a believer, and you've heard me say this probably on this very show. I am not a believer that this is a one in a hundred year thing and yeah. we can forget about this because we won't live long enough to see another one. You know, there's strong indications that all the environmental and political factors are lining up where we could easily have another pandemic at any time. And so we really, really have an obligation to protect our society on this one. But to answer your question more directly, no, we really haven't changed that much. We have air conditioners and long-term care facilities and things like that. But, you know, there's a long, long way to go. And our healthcare system is not functional Uh, not functioning well at all now if we ever had another major pandemic or you know this one may not even be over it still could come back at us um we're not well prepared uh one of the ways to be prepared is to figure out how this started are we any closer to that will we ever find out the real uh, because for sars we did but for this one not so much because there was lots of politics involved i I think the trail has somewhat gone cold but look this is my position but again I, i do study this and i myself was in the wuhan market before the outbreak in my mind and you know this is my position there's no question that this was zoonotic um, and it really did yeah. emerge from an animal host. And, yeah. and you know, what, what is driving that is the massive environmental destruction that we're going through, including global warming. You know, it's a long, somewhat complicated equation that I won't get into now. But, but really, this is the environmental determinants are really pushing us towards further pandemics with animals being forced closer and closer to other species and to humans and a huge loss of forest huge amounts of climate change. We're opening up all these new viruses. So yes, the, the risk remains there and that we're doing very, very little about. You know, Canada's plan is surveillance. Let's watch for it and, and so we can see it coming. But we need to get it in front of that. Watch for it. Why don't we prevent it? That makes hmm. more sense. Dr. Kerry Bowman, bioethicist, assistant professor, Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, on an inquiry on how we handle the COVID-19 pandemic. Kerry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Very welcome. Take care. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've talked at length with Brian J. Karam about politics in the U.S., including of Mitch McConnell, who you may know is the head Republican guy down there and uh, is getting on in age. He was at a uh, a news conference the other day and literally froze for, uh, well, 19 seconds. I guess we timed him and uh, and and then was uh, very disoriented, came back and continued on as if nothing. Nothing had ever happened. Is it time to discuss how old is too old when it comes to politics? We have to go through the same thing when driving a car up here. Uh, what about politics? Uh, Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, Washington diplomat, and host of Just Ask the Question podcast, author of Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian J. Karam, how are you today? 
well, I'm hot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we there's all no, are. Thank God there's no such thing as, as climate change. It's all yeah. a hoax. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a little toasty. So yeah. uh, your take on this and and how and the fallout from it. I mean, is is it now time to discuss whether it's on the left or the right? Gee, how old do you have to be before it's time to uh, to hang your hat? We got a lot of oldies down here. I mean, you got Feinstein, you got uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, the president, uh, then Donald Trump. I mean, all of these are people in their later seventies or early eighties. And, uh, so if you question one, you got to question them all. I, I think, you know, it's, it's an individual cases and on, on an individual basis. And I think that in the case of, uh, Mitch McConnell, he was just crazy to begin with. And so I, I, you know, I, I would have voted him out eons ago, but you know, he stuck around because the people in my great home state of Kentucky, don't listen too much. And so they just don't get it. And so we keep getting uh, him back again and again and again. Uh, loyalty is unbelievable here. Uh, but at what, telling me, but oh, at oh, what, excuse me, I got to leave for a second. I got to, I got to pull Mitch out of the, out of the ditch. Hold on. <laughs> uh, but that being said, Brian, I mean, that was very concerning. I mean, you could tell even with the people around him, once they realized what was going on, uh, it's not only do you, you know, can you drive the bus? It's how's your health? Um, when you gap out, yeah, like you know that, where the you bus just, is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're on the wrong you know bus. What? A bus is. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I've I've seen Mitch do some crazy stuff over the years, and this isn't. A, I mean, he's been falling a lot recently. He's not in good health, but you know, they're not going to make Feinstein leave. They're not going to make him leave. At the end of the day, he said he's going to be there till twenty twenty four, and I'm I'm you know I have a pickup truck, a bag of lime, and a shovel, and I'm sure at some point in time when I'm standing <laughs> in front of him, he's just going to plop over, and we're going to all have to. Carry him out to the truck and head to the mortuary. I mean, it's just not pretty. Does it matter? Um, is he in control of much? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're there, if he's there just for his knowledge and his and 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 what he's but accumulated. He can't access? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! So so I, mean, yeah, I, mean, I forgot what I was even gonna. I forgot what I was even gonna ask you now, Brian. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he's definitely it, it's definitely impacted him. Come on, he, I feel bad for the guy. I mean, he, yeah. he stood there in front of us, and there's no doubt I feel bad for him. But you know, maybe you know, maybe supply side economics didn't work because even the politicians are having to work into their 80s. Maybe this is an indication that we should change things a little bit and have some younger folk out there talking and representing us. Just, you know, people who know what the internet is, <laughs> people mm. who, you know, came around after there were three television stations, not in color or in his case, <laughs> back when there was radio. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't get much older. That's just God dang gone. <laughs> and again, you said this, this goes on on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. So, I mean, Biden, the same thing. He's taking, he's taking some nasty spills as well. Uh, does this open the doors for the discussion? Hey, all of a sudden on both sides, we gotta, we gotta regroup here. We gotta retool. Yeah. That d discussion is always open. They just don't take it. And if you're looking at the presidential race, this may boomerang on uh, Biden a little bit, but also on Trump. At the at the end of the day, um, it's not going to be um, the deciding factor. The president has decided he's running for re-election. Donald Trump has decided he's running for election, and so you know we're going to have a couple of really old grandpas fighting it out in in the center of the ring. Uh, at least that's the way it looks now. I I maintain that Trump probably won't be on the the ballot, and 
you know, there are younger people, but the thing is, is are they groomed well enough to become president? Are there people with the experience and the gravitas? And when you hold on to these offices for as long as these folks have, I mean, Nancy Pelosi wisely stepped aside. If there were people that were as smart as she is, our government, well, would have never have elected, you know, Donald Trump. And that's a different story. (laughs) <laughs> but would she would she have stepped aside if she hadn't had the issue with her husband, right? I mean, he took the heat, he took the hit, he took the attack. That's why she stepped aside, don't you think? Well, no, I think she's been planning it for a while. I think that was convenient for, for yeah. her. I mean, I, I I don't want to say convenient, maybe a, a coincidence. I do, and, and it may have been a, a factor as to the exact time, but she had been planning to to exit herself for a while and had been grooming uh, Jeffries for the, for the role. So... That's I I I know she was already headed that way. Maybe it accelerated it a little bit, but uh, she was wisely already. Try- she had had you know she had people that she was grooming to take it over, and you know the uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats are mired in the past with their lead candidates, and uh, it's going to affect the country and the world. We're seeing that you know experience matters, but at some point in time, if you don't remember the experience you have, you're not helping much. <laughs> Uh, What do you think the chances are? uh, Because, you know, you you talked about the the candidates, the lead candidates that are there, and we all know who they are. Um, What do you think the chances are that something bizarre can happen? And by the time this election rolls around, you and I are talking. It's completely a completely different discussion than Biden and Trump. I think that the next 16 months are going to be a bumpy ride. So button up buttercup, here it comes. And you are absolutely right. It could, while we are thinking that we're looking at the, uh, at a rematch of 2020 and 2024 between mm-hmm. Biden and Trump, I for one don't believe Trump will be on the ticket. I I, I think he's going to be facing two probably sentences, long, long time behind bars, convictions by by the time next July rolls around the Republican National Convention, and you don't know what's going to happen in, on the Democratic side either. So, like I say, you know, I'm just going to keep my eyes open because I believe you are absolutely right. We're going to be having a completely different discussion this time next year and going into the fall. And you have to wonder, too, Brian, if something happens, and like you said, Donald Trump and the legal issues or so, if he's somehow not on the ticket, will Biden run? Will he step down if Trump does? That's a good question. Uh, would he feel... If Trump isn't running, that he could leave, you know, leave it in someone else's hands. My job is done. Pardon? My job is done here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and look, he's had some fantastic success so far. They don't communicate it very well. It's got to be one of the worst communication jobs I've ever seen out of any president. But he has done it. He has done, you know, for the American people. So it's it's refreshing that we can be having arguments about policy and not whether or not, you know, you've kept papers that you shouldn't have kept. They were st- stashed there by the FBI. No, wait a minute. I have a right to have them because I had a mind meld and I declassified them. And oh, by the way, I don't have to give them to you anyway. And look, aliens. Oh, wait a minute. You want to put some bleach, <laughs> put some bleach in your vein. You can cure yourself of COVID. That kind of craziness we've put behind us. I just don't want to see it return. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too, brother. Have a good one and stay cool. 
All right. Uh, we talked a lot post-pandemic about supply chain issues and prices of things that got, that had gone up, that were stuck in supply chains, semiconductors, one of them, uh, and pretty much slowing the production of everything electronic, including automobiles. Uh, we hear that that is... Uh, lightened up a little bit. And what that means moving forward, let's ask Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor of Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks, Scott. Ian, before we uh, get to the semiconductor and supply chain stuff and such, uh, I know you're an Ottawa guru. What are your thoughts of the cabinet shuffle that just happened? Uh, and do you see how uh, this can affect anything economy-wise or business in your profession? Yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm, as you can imagine, I mean, as we have talked before, um, uh, the business of Ottawa is politics. The business of Ottawa is spending money. You know, you guys in Toronto and Southern Ontario, your job is to make money. Uh, that's the center of um, uh, GDP in Canada. I mean, you know, Ontario is the, is the driver of the Canadian economy. But in Ottawa, we are the people that spend it. We're the government, you see. We're the government town. And so we follow every twitch and every rumor and every twist and tweak in the government with great uh, anticipation because it has huge impacts on careers, of course. Um, and, of course, those who study public policy and economic policy like I do and, and many others, this is very important. So to your point, um, there was all kinds of sermon drang, you know, and all kinds of rumors and all kinds of talk. But I don't think that there was any real fundamental change. And don't misunderstand me. There were seven cabinet ministers that changed. Okay, yes. But if you look at the most important ministries, the ones that are not because Ian Lee says so, but because they're widely considered to be the most important, the economic portfolios, uh, that would be uh, finance. They didn't change. And, you know, it brings to mind, I, I, I still use that quote from Pierre Elliott Trudeau 50 years ago. He said, you know, and he famously said, and he got condemned widely for saying it, but he was right. He said, you know, most MPs 50 feet from Parliament Hill are nobodies. That was his words, not mine. Mm. Well, I would like to paraphrase Pierre Trudeau's quote about the cabinet. Other than the four people in, in the finance, in the economic ministries, I think most of those cabinet ministers are nobodies. I mean by that, that if you went up to the average person on the street and said, can you name the minister for small business or the minister for tourism or the minister yeah. for, you know, name any of the portfolios, and you would get a blank probably 99% of the time. And that's because a lot of it is window dressing, and par partly, and partly because they don't make the big decisions. So let's turn to those four. They're all very competent. And then let's start with Christy Freeland. I mean, I don't agree. As you know, I've been very, very critical of their policies. So I'm distinguishing the policies from the individual. She's in a very intelligent individual, very competent individual. But I don't see any evidence thus far that they're going to change any of their major policies. And their problems, and they've said so themselves, it was reported in the Star that the PMO leaked to the Toronto Star journalist that they see affordability as number one, you know, affordability of food prices, affordability of housing. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think that's been the problem for the last two or three years. And, and that's, the, that's their number one problem facing the government, and that's why they're down 10 points, poll after poll, compared to the Conservatives. So, did this shuffle do anything different concerning those issues that the PMO, not me, have said are the number one issue. And I don't see any evidence of that. Now, maybe we're going to get a big surprise in the fall uh, mini-budget, as it's called, the, the fall update. 
um, or maybe next March, April, they'll announce some major new surprises that we don't know about. But right now, it seems to me this is a the the keeping the four people in the four critical ministries. This is was a, a message that they're going to stay the course on decarbonization. They're going to stay the course on on uh, uh, carbon tax. They're going to stay the course on what they're doing and and not pressuring the municipalities to open up a lot more land and develop a lot more houses a lot more quickly. So, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, I'm very much with Andrew Coyne, who wrote a very, very critical uh, analysis of this, the Cabinet Shuffle. I I think it's much ado about nothing, uh, because they didn't, and I'm not saying they should have fired the finance ministries uh, and Christy Freeland. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying I don't see any evidence that they're going to change direction with what the globe today is calling for, new ideas. And I didn't see that in the last two or three days with the cabinet shuffle. All right, uh, got about a minute left. Let's talk supply chain, specifically semiconductor chips. We've seen how this slowed the auto industry. Are we seeing a relaxing? Are we seeing more and more product coming in? I think so. I think so. And and some people may, you know, their eyes may glaze over, you know, and they hear, oh, semiconductor chips, oh, boring, boring, nothing to do with me. I couldn't be more blunt than anyone who thinks that couldn't be more wrong. Chips are in everything. They are in your toaster, your toaster, your <laughs> air fryer, your microwave, your TV, your cell phone, your car, your cell phone. They're in everything today. We could not run the modern economy in which we live without all of these chips. We literally could not function. We couldn't run the university without all the chips and all the IT we use because we're completely digital. Governments couldn't function. Corporations couldn't function. Media couldn't function. We'd be back to the Stone Age. So, you know, I argue that the two most most important things in this world today are two things, chips and food. Food because we have to eat every day. You know, you can't stop eating. And chips because they make the economy run. And so people should be screaming out loud with, with, with joy that the, the supply chains are coming back in a balance with the, uh, the chip, the, the semiconductor industry, which is the proper term for chips. Chips are the brains of anything. They're the brains of your computer, the brains of your camera, the brains of your scanner, the brains of your iPhone. And, and so the production, the imbalance in supply and demand is coming back into balance. And, and it looks like prices are starting to moderate. And I'm hoping that this is going to feed back into the car business because, as we know, there's been huge shortages of cars, and it's principally been because of the problem with chips. And so this is a good news story. And, you know, just as a sidebar, let, just give me five seconds on this point. Yep. You know, if the government had dropped $30 billion into chip-making companies in Canada, I would have been screaming with joy at the prime minister. Instead of dropping $30 billion into car plant, battery plants in an mm. industry where we're not even in the top 10, and we never will be. And it's not even a critical industry. They say it is. Chips are far more important. They're going to be here for now and into the future. And I wish he'd put $30 billion, if he was going to spend $30 billion of government money, should have put into chip fab plants because we are repatriating uh, fab plants and chip-making plants from China because of the, the whole problem of the relationship between China and Western uh, uh, countries. Uh, but we didn't, and uh, I wish we had it, because chips are the future. Another discussion we'll have later. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Thank you, Ian. Have a great weekend. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott.
Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The mayor of Hamilton, Andrea Horvath, held a working meeting on housing and affordability with a collection of officials dubbed Team Hamilton. In attendance were all five of Hamilton's federal members of parliament, along with city councilors and staff. The group discussed city's housing investment roadmap, Hamilton's application to the uh, to the Housing Accelerator Fund, and shared information about local challenges, opportunities, and solutions. To talk about uh, all of this, Andrea Horvath, mayor, city of Hamilton here. Andrea, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing uh, very, very well. Thank you, other than being a little bit warm, but I think I share that problem with everyone today. <laughs> it is a little sticky out there, Andrea. All right, this sounds great, but, and we all know this issue. Man, this is a, a real problem that everybody's finding themselves in across the country. Tell us about this meeting. It sounds great. What does it mean when the rubber hits the road? Well, what it was was a, an ability to sit with the people who make funding decisions uh, and talk about what our needs are, as well as how their programs might better meet those needs. And what, I mean, a big part of what we're trying to do and what I try to do as mayor is always fight for what Hamilton needs and, and, and do that in a way that gets results, hopefully. The way you get results is making sure that the people you're asking know what you're asking for uh, and that they can tell us what, what uh, you know, what they might be able to do to adjust uh, to our ask. And so we had that kind of a meeting today. Uh, as you said, uh, it, the cost of living is getting really high. So many of our residents uh, are not able to make ends meet and the affordability of housing is a big, big part of that. So we know we need more affordable housing. We know we need permanent solutions, uh, but we also know that we can't do it alone. And so that's why I was really pleased. Initially, we were going to have the uh, Minister of Housing federally with us, but of course, with the cabinet shuffle uh, a couple of days ago, everything uh, changed hands. But I have been assured uh, that the new minister responsible for housing, infrastructure, and communities, which is very interesting that that's all bundled together under one ministry. Uh, my my sense that I got from the MPs today is that we will be able to uh, access that new minister as well. Is this about housing in general or specifically the issues in around tents and parks and those that are living on the street, the homeless? Well, I mean, for everything we're hearing from Hamiltonians uh, in our consultation process is that people really do want to see permanent solutions. And so it, it, it's never going to be the case that there isn't a single person unhoused. I mean, that's just uh, it's been the case yeah. for a very, a very long time. But we have a lot of people who are unhoused. So we need both affordable housing so more people don't be but also a housing that's supportive to help those who are uh, not housed right now to be able to be successful in housing. So there's a whole continuum, as you know, uh, that, uh, that we need to address. Today was talking about the bricks and mortar uh, to a great extent, although there is uh, some federal funding that we've stepped into in the past that helps with some of those supportive dollars. And we need to have the province in this uh, conversation as well. So certainly it's on my list of things to do to have those conversations provincially as well. A big barrier is capital dollars, uh, but we also need operating dollars to provide those supports. It seems that um, um, uh, a lot of the programs, a lot of the issues we're talking about are after the fact. It's to help the people who are now in a crisis scenario as opposed to getting ahead of this. It, it seems that we haven't built any type of housing prior to the pandemic, 5, 10, 15, 20 years uh, before that. You talked about high costs, uh, affordability, interest rates, what have you. Those are all major factors, but that is all incredibly accelerated when you have a very 
very, very small supply and a very high demand. Is the attitude changing about building? Because it seems it's been a bad word for a long time. Well, I, I don't know that um, that it's been a bad word. It's just been something that people haven't bothered to uh, uh, to address in better times. And I think you're very smart to uh, to kind of identify that. And you know, I don't want to hark on my, my back to my old rules, but but certainly, yeah. you know, trying to get governments in the past to move not only on uh, keeping up with affordable housing stock, but also on on mental health investments and supports, right, and on addictions. Uh, supports and of course all of those things were exacerbated by the pandemic uh, and the combination now is deadly like literally deadly between the lack of affordable yeah. housing the lack of supportive housing the lack of, of upstream investments in mental health and addictions all of these have put us in the quagmire we're in now and it and and people are literally losing their lives and uh, and, and there's now a much bigger problem uh, for us to try to um, address. You know, we hear lots about it because now the rush is on by all four major political parties to build houses. That was prominent in the last provincial election, which I've never seen before. So now the push is on to get housing built. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody wants to see land being built on the green belt. But those that are against that say, well, there's lots of other land to build. Well, if that's the case, how do we have a housing shortage? Because many will say that land is locked as well when municipalities and red tape and all that other stuff. Well, we have about 37,000 units in the hopper that are able to be built. Some have been sitting in abeyance for for years now. Uh, you know, everything's ready to go. They're zoned pro- appropriately. There's uh, there's the capacity to uh, to have those things built, but they're not being built now. There are new, there are other applications that uh, are stuck at the city. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and then, of course, we have all these new policies that help with infill development. You know, with the uh, the um, you know the amendment or the um, adjustments to your existing home, you know, putting another little unit in your in your side yard, all of those kinds of things. But we also have to be smart about facilitating people's ability to do that. And I'm hearing some feedback that we need to be better at that as well. It's fine to say you can add a granny flat, but if if you if it's hard to do that, if you can't get through the the process and it's onerous, then really are we going to get those granny flats? And the other thing is. We need the middle, the missing middle housing to be built. And I'm happy to see that some of that is being built, but we need a lot more. That's like the starter home kind of idea. Remember back in the day when we used to try yeah. to buy a starter home uh, and to, to get your foot in the market? So we, we need to be uh, building more of those, like duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, um, you know, those kinds of the, the townhouses, the stack townhouses that uh, they're kind of entry units, or at least they used to be. We need to build everything. Uh, Andrea Horbath with us, Mayor, City of Hamilton. Thank you so much. Good luck, Andrea. It's a tough haul, um, and I know you're working hard. Good luck. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. I promise. This is the last time I'm going to talk about a cabinet shuffle. Uh, Until the next one, of course. Uh, Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. So your thoughts, a new cabinet, new faces, some have said uh, same direction. Will this work? I think it's the last chance this government has if they want to stay in government. So for their say, I think they hope it's going to work. Do I think it's going to work? I'm not as optimistic on that one. Uh, you said last chance for this government. Then what would happen next? And how close? I, mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago we were talking about whether Justin Trudeau would run again, let alone what the cabinet would look like. Now it seems it's uh, where the, the captain staying and the crew has changed. If this doesn't work, could we see a leadership shuffle? Well, 
Uh, I don't think we're going to see a leadership shuffle. I think the reason that they made these moves was to prepare Justin Trudeau for the next election, whatever that might be. Um, I think they looked at the polling numbers and saw that they were in some serious trouble, and they needed to move ministers that were causing trouble and put some new faces in there and put a different spin on the, on the government. Uh, obviously, uh, the Bernardo situation, Marco Medicino, uh, the public inquiry called for that during uh, due to election interference. What happens to all those big issues now that were front and center before the cabinet shuffle? Do those go away now? No, those become Dominic LeBlanc's issues. And there's a reason that they put Dominic LeBlanc in that role is to clean up the mess. He's an excellent communicator. He's a well-versed politician. And they need them with political chops, to, to be frank with you to put the issue to bed because they haven't been able to do that lately. And I think it's going to be one that continues because it was really bumbled. And I think the government realized that they need a repression coming to fix it. Many uh, supporters of the government will say this is all about a communications issue, that they, they just don't seem to be selling all the great things that they're doing. Do you think that's the case or, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. Well, I'm not sure what great things they are doing. So, yeah, very much a good communication issue on that one. Because when you talk with liberals, uh, they say they're doing a lot for Canadians, but Canadians don't feel that way. So it does come down to comms, and I think by putting some new faces in there, they're looking to get some new energy into the government and hopefully try to catch some momentum because it's not looking good if you're looking at the pools right now for them. Do you think it is that Canadians are not hearing the message or that they just don't like the message? It's also a bit of column A, a bit of column B. Do liberals credit when they do break through and have good news to deliver? It is good news for Canadians. Canadians are benefiting in some ways from this government. Uh, they just don't seem, Canadians just don't feel like they're seeing those benefits anymore because things are frankly getting more expensive and liberals are trying to help uh, fight inflation with the grocery rebate, but that honestly fell in deaf ears. Um, well, you know, when they talk about the grocery rebates, then there's the uh, the opposite side that say, well, there's 11 million getting them. Is that really helping them? I mean, it's great you're helping people, but rather than, you know, helping people after a crisis, let's just not get into one. Hey, I think if liberals can go back in their time machine, I think they would do a number of things differently. Uh, and they said they're in a hard spot, and they realize they're in a hard spot. And the grocery rebate was them trying to put some water on a fire that was created, and we're hearing a lot. I was watching uh, the, the shuffle the other day and the news conferences that ensued. And it, uh, Christia Freeland, uh, the prime minister, and I'm trying to think who else. Uh, they were all saying they all used the word economy or economics or our new economic team or our strong economic team. Uh, one time, you never heard that from this government. Now, all of a sudden, post-cabinet shuffle, it's all about the economy. Why now? Because that's what Canadians are talking about. Canadians are worried that their paycheck will not meet all their bills. They're worried that the economy is going to go into the toilet soon, and they're worried about their jobs. So the government is trying to respond to that, and that's what they're that's what they're trying to spin this cabinet at. And this is the best decision for Canadians to protect our economy and to see growth again. Will that be the case? Time will tell, Scott. Time will tell. Where does this leave Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP? I think it leaves him. Thankfully, he didn't get shuffled out of the cabinet, if that's how he wants to view it. I still think he has a role with this government. He still has his ear to a certain amount. Um, I don't think his game plan changes. He's still very much focused on trying to create wins for progressive policies. And to be to be to be frank with you, this is the best way for him to actually try to influence government policy. So I think his position stays relatively the same. As long as he props the government up, he's going to get a win every once in a while. They're going to throw him a bone.
We have seen in Canada the Prime Minister take the what was once the center left conservative or center left liberal party and move it to the far left, joining and teaming up with the NDP. Um, at, at the end of the day, do you think Canadians want more of that? Where does that leave Jugmeet Singh, considering? Uh, the Liberals have taken, uh, you know, their message and, and steered it right over top of the NDPs. Uh, he's going to have to be very careful because if he doesn't play his cards right, the Liberals are going to be eating his lunch. And I think they're eating his lunch right now because when the campaign happens, they're going to be like, oh, we were actually the government that brought you dental care. We were the ones that looked to bring farmer care to you. Not the NDP, it was us, this Liberal government. So Jamie thinks we have to be careful. He needs to get some wins to show that his policy ideas work, but he can't give the government too much where they take credit for all of it because at the end of the day, he has to try to get reelected. And if he concedes too much ground to liberals, it's not going to look good for him or, or his party. Has Justin Trudeau taken the liberals too far to the left? I think that depends who in the Liberal Party uh, you ask. I think some people say, no, it's exactly where it needs to be, where I think some of the more older traditional Liberals say yes. I think what he's going to have to do in the next couple of months to a year is to figure out if he's done that, if he needs to bring it back. I don't think internally. I think he's putting the party exactly where he wants them to be, and that is to be a progressive party, because that's what he's run on the past three elections, and that's worked for him. So I don't think he's going to be running it back to the center anytime soon. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies, talking about the cabinet shuffle. Daniel, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word, this one from David. Hello, Scott. Andrea Horvath held the balance of power for three years with her liberal coalition and accomplished zero things uh, that she has been blaming the Ford government for in the last six years. Just like Jugmeet Singh holds the balance of power now, but just complains. Both were addicted to the illusion of power. Have a great weekend. Keep right except to pass. We'll chat in a bit. 